be shift boss. Okay, radio check. Yeah, radio's working fine. Yeah, copy all personnel. Yeah, copy, mate. Did a tear in the vet bag. Yeah, stitcher up there, thanks, mate. Yeah, right, eh? Copy that. Right, Hugh Brown, international mining photographer, let's say best selling author, all the good stuff. Welcome to Life of Mine, Cobber. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Matt. What an accolade. That's a good intro. That's bloody... Well, as soon as you drop the word international anything, <laughs> it means you're the real fucking deal. Yeah, that's the thing. It's the same with when you've done a book. You can do a book, and as soon as you say you've done a book, everyone thinks you must be good. It doesn't matter and how good the book was. Well, and you just say, and as soon as you've written a book, you're a best-selling author. Yeah, that's the one, absolutely. Essentially. I'm happy, happy, happy with the title. <laughs> what a, what a, out of curiosity... Uh, what? How many books have you written, and what are they about? We'll get into who you are, but um, they talk about so everyone just buys a book straight away. Yeah, mate, I've done I've done seven books. Um, I've done two on the Kimberley region, two on the Pilbara region, and I've done three books in the mining industry. I did a book for Rio um, on their rail business just before the automated trains came in, and then I did a, a book for Ausdrills twenty five years, and I also did a, a book for Atlas Iron. So just when they were at the sort of the, the heyday, but I've got I've got three books I'm working on at the moment. One's on, and it's another book on the Pilbara. I've got a book on Rayburn. I sort of photographed and interviewed fifty people in Rayburn over sort of six years or so, and then I'm working on this major project around the world, which is basically photographing the world's poorest miners working in some of the most difficult conditions on the planet. So yeah. Yeah, that's that's the spiel. We will get to that. So those books you've done are they those organisations seconded you to, I guess, cover their story? How, how does that work? Are there, is it essentially you photograph, interview, and it's a you know a bit of a picture and narrative style side of things? Yeah, the the Rio book we had a you know because I've always been interested in documenting history and you know the stories that people have because it's sort of quite often the you know uh, you'll hear all these stories and and then time passes and no one really ever picked them up and what i what i wanted to do with the rio book was um you know take some photos and and photograph some of their longest serving employees and get the stories behind that and you know getting into an organization even though i'd done work with rio previously an organization like that can be difficult to navigate through so what we ended up doing one of my mates was in um rail operations there and uh, i think he it's, it's possibly might have got me in there at one stage as the cousin of one of uh, as his cousin you know and um, that got me on the sort of first train that i rode on and we got a couple of photos out of that and then the sort of head of rail ops and um, maintenance sort of quite liked what we did and then it sort of became an exercise in navigating through the bureaucracy above that so um yeah the other the other two um Ausdrill, for example i'd been um you know i've been they've been a client of mine for probably 15 years and i'd photograph their stuff all around the world and um ron sayers who you know long-serving md there came to me and said he wanted a book and initially he wanted it done in in three months and i said right ron i said that's going to be a little bit difficult and he, i said i'll give it a crack but um and then the and we ended up knocking it out and then he sort of came to me and said he got some more time so the the atlas iron one was uh, you know they'd been a long-term client as well so yeah some of those things tend to tend to come up um yeah, just out of the blue, and some of them you sort of have to cultivate over a long period of time. Yeah, very good. Now, how'd you get into all this mining? Like, did you start out as a photographer, or whether you can say a normal photographer, and went into saw a market in the mining industry? How did you end up becoming a photographer for the resources sector? 
Yeah, look, it's a good question. Um, I, started, I studied business and law, worked with you know, one of the world's most prestigious management consulting firms in corporate strategy, and I got sick of that. And, but I'd been involved with the mining industry pretty much since leaving uni. So I think the first job was with BHP and head office in Melbourne, and that was a, as VAC work. And then um, my clients in consulting, a lot of them were mining clients. And then I got sick of that and um, moved, decided to sort of get, I, I did a trip to Broome and ended up hitchhiking up the West Australian coast after a meeting in Perth and um, took some leave. And then um, I got to Broome in the Kimberley and I sort of loved it. And I thought, you know what, I'm, the job's not sort of so, so meaningful for me anymore. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to chuck that in. I'm going to move back here to the Kimberley. And that's basically what I did. And and then I sort of still worked in my chosen field for a, a few years up in the Kimberley. And then around about 2004, I, being a photographer was not something I'd ever, you know, considered doing. It wasn't even an ambition. It was just something I'd never considered. And I was taking photos in some pretty amazing places up here and people were saying, you know, maybe you should do something with it. And when I stepped away from the job that I was doing, um, I decided to, yeah, the mining industry was a natural fit because I had a reasonable understanding of it. And it's, I mean, Dave Flanagan at, at Atlas Iron, who, you know, started that company pretty much. He, he, we did a, a deal together because, you know, they were just getting started. I was just getting started and they ended up becoming a client for about 15 years or so. So that's how I got started. So what, and what were you doing for them just for, for photographing the, I guess, the development and progress of Atlas Iron or the annual annual reports and everything? Yeah, it wasn't even development. It was, they were, they had four people, I think, when I started um, shooting for them. And the job I did, they had, they had two tenements. They had one out at a place called Farrell Well, which is just north of uh, Marble Bar. And they had um, one around Pardue and the, the, the Farrell Well Tournament was a gold tournament. And that's what everyone thought was going to be the flyer. But um, it was just at the, the start of the iron ore boom or just, just before. And um, they managed to get some traction on the iron ore tenement. And, um, you know, I was shooting their, their annual reports. They were using stuff for, you know, human resources, marketing, investor relations, all of that sort of stuff. And they grew from, you know, for a, a company employing four people at that stage to, to becoming a company of you know three billion, I think it was market cap got over three billion dollars at one stage. Yeah. What what did what 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 was the um what ended up happening with Atlas on in the end? Um, yeah, they still they still exist in name, but Gina bought them out um, through Hancock Prospecting. Ah, right, that was it. Because they, they were, I guess, the number four in well, it was like you know BHP, Rio, Fortescue, then Atlas on, and um, yep. yeah, there you go. Yeah, I forgot about that. There you go. Yeah, yeah, we're, no, we're, into, we're into the blade. So you're even advising on what's going on in the stock market too, Cop. <laughs> <laughs> you're a one-stop yeah. shop, photos, stock market advice, everything. <laughs> yeah, just don't ask me about technology sometimes in these remote areas. Yeah, 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 bloody oath. There you go. So now the the big project you're doing at the moment, This is, uh, this, I guess this is what caught my eye on LinkedIn after following you and on Facebook and a lot of the photos you've been putting up. The um Yeah. As you said, photo well, the title we give photographing the uh I guess the poorest miners in the world, the artisanal side is that how you pronounce it? Artisanal? Artisanal. So it's basically Artisanal, pe yeah. People working by hand and, you know, by manual means largely. So Is that is that the know, is that what artisanal mining is, is people that are mining with their hands? Is that is that Yeah, pretty Pretty much artisan or artisanal means, you know, people working with their hands in, you know, it, might, it can be any pretty much profession, but in the context of 
mining. It's it's basically guys working, uh, men, women, and children, you know, working with picks and shovels. And um, yeah, they it's there's there's around forty million of them directly employed around the world. And there's about you know by the time you include people that rely on these people, there's another two hundred and forty million. So there's about two hundred and eighty million people in the world that depend on this activity it's quite amazing and, and the beauty and the amazing thing about it is most of us in the developed world never even heard anything about it no no and that and that's the funniest thing that's what i'm um, got a got a few questions about it and a lot of it's um probably based on how naive a lot of us are in the western world that the this stuff's actually happening um now how did you how did this become a project what spurred what motivated this how did this all come about to make yeah, it, to, okay, as you said, three. Now, you said you got three books on the go. Is this just one of yeah. them or this, this is- This is this is the major one, um, but I've got two others on the go. The Pilbara one's with the designer at the moment, so that's more advanced than the one we're talking about. But, um, yeah, uh, look, how did I get involved with it? Um, it's an, an interesting step, isn't it? How do you become a mining photographer and then how do you become a mining by hand photographer? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and think I'm going to- um, put me cock on the block and travel around the world <laughs> and try and uh yeah bloody uh oh no and i know i can tell by a lot of your posts it's not about uh making money you're making a difference raising awareness so yeah get mate give us a spiel i'm interested to hear i don't know what the fuck you're about to tell me to be honest no mate that, no one does even even those that know me um <laughs> no back in 2006 i you know the um to, to i said i was drill ramey said oh we want you to go to ghana how do you feel about that and I said, look, give me a, let me have a think about it and I'll get back to you. And I sort of, I, you know, I wasn't that keen on Africa because Africa had never really been on the radar. And I actually rang a mate that I studied law with and he's two of us in this class of 60. He became a photographer as well and I became a photographer. And um, I said, mate, do you want to go to Ghana? I said, I'm not sure I want to go. And he said, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. And I said, look, let me have a think about it. But I, I decided to go in the end and... Um, I was only it was a it was a it was a it was a huge trip like we, it was a two week trip and we just smashed it out like the hours were just crazy the travel was crazy and I remember getting back to Perth and ran at a friend's place for dinner the night I got off the plane and I literally fell asleep in my dinner plate only time in my life I've ever done that but while I was there on that trip um, I saw these people working beside the roadside and they were literally mining by hand and. I was fascinated. My driver, Jono, who's Ghanaian guy, just a top shelf guy, he uh, told me to be careful. He said, because some of the, you know, these guys are criminals, a lot of them, and yada, yada, yada. And I was careful. And, and then in 2008, I, I went back and I saw more of it. It was a longer trip when I went back in 2008 to Africa. And then in 2010, I, I did a really long stint in Africa, about four months, I think it was which is sound doesn't sound that long but when you're on the road and you're doing 10 countries and you know however many flights and all of that it's quite intense and um i got more and more fascinated i got back to perth and i was talking to this guy i knew in advertising he said you should have you thought about doing a book and i said yeah i have i said but i've got no idea how i'm going to fund it i, I don't know how i do you know i don't know who's going to buy it so i ended up getting started anyway and a couple of clients kicked in some coin to get me over there and and I sort of looked back to, and the only, the only, the thing that drove it at that stage was, was just a fascination with what these people did because, you know, we've all seen pictures of what the gold rushes were like back in the 1850s. And here I was seeing pictures of what happened in the 1850s sort of happening now. And, and, you know, it was nothing more than that. It was just a fascination and being intrigued with what they were doing. So, 
over the sort of, you know, the ensuing years, I traveled all over the place and and that first trip I did to Burkina Faso, which has become a difficult country now, like the Burkina is genuinely difficult because of extremist activity. Um, we were working in some tricky spots. I remember what my first fixer there, he, I ended up sacking him because all he was worried about was getting killed. And I didn't sort of pick that sense up so much and said, said look, just deal with it and you know, we'll make it work. But he couldn't get over that. He was that worried about getting killed, I had to sack him. So, and I look back to that first trip I did and how naive I was in so many ways. I looked at my working methods and how, you know, how much they've changed since then. And that got me started. And then the next trip I did was into a, an active volcano. And then the next trip was sort of photographing the coal mafia in um, India. And then, you know, eventually I did Pakistan, um, you know, working sort of the highest altitude, some of the highest altitude miners in the world. These guys were mining up near 15,000 feet, 16,000 feet. Um, and it sort of went on from there. And, um, and then as the, the longer I went, the, the more things, my ideas started to shape. And one of the most difficult things about it was working out, A, who, was, who might be interested in buying the book. And at, at that stage, you know, I had a, a general ambition that I wanted to sell maybe 50,000 copies of this book. But it was also about wanting to make a difference as well. So, but I didn't know what that difference was because I didn't necessarily have a... I didn't have a view on what I was seeing. I, I saw good aspects in the bad, and then I saw bad aspects in the good. And through all of that, I couldn't get anyone to fund the project. And it took me 10 years to work out why, um, you know, why I wasn't getting the project funding. I thought, bugger it, I'm going to smash through it anyway. And that's where I am now. And um, I'm in the home straight, but it's been, it's been the hardest thing I've ever done. I've done some bloody hard things, I think, along the journey um, outside of photography. And this this is the hardest and, and, and it's hard at a number of levels. It's hard because, um, you know, phys you know, working in some of these places is difficult. You're working at really high altitude at times. Um, you've got security issues, you know, kidnap and kidnaps a major issue. Um, and then you've got sort of, you know, safety in the mines because these mines aren't, you know, working to Australian or Western standards or any of that sort of stuff. So, you know, like back in Pakistan in 2015, I was nearly killed by a bit of fly rock and a blast. Um, and then, then, so you've got that sort of um, strand and then on the other strand, you've got the, the model as to what the project is about and then um, also how you fund the project. And in the end, what I decided to do, I said, well, you know, I'm going to get there and I'm just going to put it all on the line and I'm here to make a difference and to live a life that's meaningful and accumulating toys and all of that sort of stuff is going to be secondary to any of that, you know. And because I suppose when you look at it, mining is and this would be the i'm sure this is the the balance that well this is probably why it's it's hard to get the funding for it because mining has you know well i suppose given you the photography career that you've become bloody famous for but then i guess you're doing a project that is sort of portraying mining in a negative way in like in on in a third world countries and people be like oh that's a bit of a bloody conflict of like a whether I don't know what the word is, whether it's ethical or conflict of interest, or it's a yeah, it's controversial anyway, isn't it? It'd be the best word for it. Yeah, there's all of that, and and um, you know, it goes much deeper than that as well, because um, the more you drill down, the more you realise how how important this issue that I'm working on, and and you know, I had no idea when I started out on this. The journey I started was you know because it was interesting and I can't claim any credit whatsoever for 
happening to link in with what's going on now. But over the course of that 10 years, this, this industry in terms of dollars going in from outside is billions of dollars. And that's not money being spent on the minerals that they're producing. That's just being spent on you know, consultants and auditors and, and whoever else. So it's a really, really topical industry at the moment. And it's topical you know, for some, of the, for some of the things that you're talking about, but it's also topical at a, at a geopolitical level because you've also got, um, you've got, one of the challenges you've got is that resources are running out in the world and, you know, people, the geos will all disagree with you on that, but the reality is in gold, for example, there's, we found 50% less minerals, less gold in between 2010 and 2020 than we did in 1991. Yeah, right. So, so, and and what and the, so basically, now there's only resources left in five other places, five places um, on the planet and elsewhere. One of those is in the subsea environment. One of those is in the wilderness regions. So think Alaska or the Amazon or the jungles of Central Africa. Um, one of those is in the polar regions. One of those is in space. So think the asteroid belt. And then the last, the last of the five is the developing world countries. So. When you think about it, which of the which of those five things are the easiest to go looking for? It's the developing world. So, I've got my own views on why I think there's that interest in the developing world. But um, yeah, certainly a, a, a tricky space. Now, see if you whether you can give an answer on this or not. These artisanal miners, the hand hand miners. Yeah. Break it up. How many of them are doing it just to? Get what they can, sell what they can on a on a black market or or whatever. Are any of them connected to public companies around the globe, or how are they? Is it all illegal mining? What's what's the go with it all? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. It's the space is complex, so um, going to be tough to sum up in <laughs> fifteen no, or twenty it, minutes, isn't it? But yeah, it's um yeah. So yeah, you they, go. So about sort of probably I reckon about 70% of the miners around the world are men or male and I reckon about 30% of them are female. Um, are, they, are they tied up in, so, so let's, let, me, let me just bolt those questions down. So are they tied up in, you know, for example, things like organised crime and are they tied up with public companies? Um, look, there are organised crime elements in it and that's that's all around the globe and but that's not all mines and it's not most of the mines you look at a place like south america and the organized crime element is is much more significant and it ties in a lot with the narcos because the narcos are using um um illegal mining um to the narcos are using illegal mining basically to launder dirty money from the drug trade but from everything i understand most of the money the um the narcos are making these days is actually coming from illegal mining now, oh, what more second, so than more so than selling bloody Charlie? Correct. Yeah, right. So they're running they're running it through the jungles. So basically, I'll sell it into the US. Um, money goes back down to um, yeah South America. They buy buy mines down in South America, and then that's you know used to to launder dirty money. There was a bust in in the US recent oh, in the last year or two um, that got a lot of publicity, but you know the. The, the publicity was bigger than I think the actual bust because they didn't get really really anyone at the top in in sort of North America. Um, yeah. So so the organised crime element tends to be more so in say South America than what it does in Africa. Um, the reality is in 
the, in this space, there's um, absolutely the minerals these guys, these people are producing feeds into our daily life. So, um, you know, there's so many minerals. There's over 100 countries that have artisanal mining. Um, you've got, you know, minerals like cobalt, copper, um, even mammoth tusk in um, Russian Far East. You've got gold, silver, coal, sulfur, um, you know, iron ore, manganese. Um, pretty much you have a think about nearly every metal that's worth anything and it's mined artisanally. In terms of percentages, um, gold is about 20% artisanally mined around the world. Um, so, so you're saying 20% of all the gold produced in the world is hand mined. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Is yeah, that correct. right? Holy shit. And there is a fuckload of gold that is <laughs> produced on the uh, by public companies every year. That is phenomenal. Yeah. So you've got about 85% of coloured gemstones. So think sapphires, emeralds, rubies um, are mined by artisanal miners, 85%. Yeah. Um, cobalt, which is a topical one at the moment, um, probably about 20% is artisanally mined. Um, so the, the tin, tantalum, and tungsten, which is topical again as well, um, is about 25% artisanally mined. Um, so the, the thing about all of this, the one thing that gets overlooked and something that I'm hammering pretty hard, and I'm throwing a lot of rocks at some reasonably senior people in the industry for this is that the, the the PR that comes out doesn't seem doesn't necessarily match the reality. So I give an example: cobalt and children working in the Congo is a big one at the moment. It's copying a lot of lot of pr a lot of press. Um, and I had a go at a, an ABC story came on, I think it was um, foreign correspondent recently where they sort of really hammered this issue. the The reality is that. Cobalt is only one of a number of um, metals that's mined by artisanal miners that happen to have kids working, right? But one of the things that people overlook in our simplistic five-second soundbite world is that, you know, what is child labour? So let me give you some examples. Uh, for example, what age is considered to be, is a child considered to be child labour, doing what type of work, in what countries, all of that sort of stuff. So for example, when I was, when I was five years old, I was mowing a half acre lawn of the next door neighbour and I was getting paid five bucks for doing it, right? It's, it probably says a little bit about how old, how old I am. I did a newspaper round when I was you know, 10, worked in a nursery. No one ever accused, called me a child labourer, right? And, and there seems to be a real misalignment and a real, um, you know, uh, paradox in standards between what in the West we call child labour and what they call a child labour in Africa because quite often kids working in these places, not actually kids working, the kids basically helping their parents and these kids go around with their parents and they work in family groups and the kids, you know, if there's rock to be shifted, the kids move, shift the rocks and they all help their parents. Um, and it's just, I was talking to someone in Ghana just last week about this, this very issue, and there's no clarity around all of that. Um, the second thing that's really interesting is this concept of illegality, um, because you've got sort of straight out illegal, something's illegal on the statute books, and then you've got something's legal, right? So, but, the, but the thing is, it's not black and white, because if you go to a place like Africa, what happens is it, something can be illegal on the statute books, but that statute or that legislation is not actually enforced. And it's not actually enforced to the extent that the, um, very often the government will put in police there to sort of aid 
the sort of smooth and efficient workings of some of these artisanal mines. So even though it's supposed to be illegal, the government's got police there, all of that just sort of keeping the peace and making sure everything's happening. The other thing that can tend to happen in these places is that the artisanal miners very often are the ones that are responsible for finding big ore bodies in places around Africa. And then what happens is the government finds out and then the government sort of um, changes the land tenure on that and then issues a, um, issues a, um, mine, a, a expir expiration or mining concession for international mining companies to come in. Um, the mining companies come in. There's a bit of coexistence for a while between the artisanal miners and the large-scale mining company. And then the large-scale mine gets sick of them and then the gendarmes get called in and then um, the artisanals get booted out. So it's a, it's a really, really, you know, a recent case in, um, in Mozambique involving, you know, one of the world's largest gem producers, a company called Gemfields. Um, you know, there was, there's been the beatings and torture and alleged murder of miners by security personnel associated with that company. Uh, and that company ended up settling out of court in, you know, in a case in London um, in a no-fault settlement. So you've got all this stuff going on. It's a really murky really murky space there yeah, right i know i i i can't believe the um it's oh, you would never think that because I, I think i just did a quick google pretty sure i got it right but there's about 90 million ounces of gold produced in 2021 and 2020 so 20 of that so there's 18 million ounces of artisanal mining around the world if saying and, if, and you, if you're saying there's 20 percent of is artisanal and what that's pretty bloody unbelievable what and what's really interesting about that too is that the artisanal miners serve a really important purpose beyond the amount they produce if you look at a commodity like cobalt which can be subject to sort of um, rapid um, demand fluctuations or supply fluctuations it takes a large-scale mining company time to sort of ramp up plans for expansion and justify a business case or or even to go the other way where the, the artisanal sort of work really well is they can sort of basically go in set up and be operational within a day almost you know yeah within reason um, and so if there's a demand spike required, they can deliver that demand spike because the, um, because metal prices presumably support their, you know, wages and everything. So it sees that they, 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 artisanal mining plays a really important role also from the point of view of employment. Um, you've got, to give you some context, you've got, say, 40 million miners in artisanal mining around the world producing less than 10% of the world's metals, right? Um, you've got 7 million large-scale miners producing more than 90% of the world's metals. And one of the beauties of artisanal mining is the money that comes into their community stays in their community. It doesn't get sort of pumped out so much um, of the country as in, say, large-scale mining or whatever else. So um, there's all these other benefits, skills benefits that don't get talked about. And um, I sound like I'm an advocate for them, and I'm, you know, I'm big, I'm a big supporter of them because there's no one sort of pushing their there's no one pushing their barrow. What they do is not perfect. I totally get that, but there's no one, you know. There's a lot of people hammering and kicking them and all of that sort of stuff, but they do. There are some real benefits to what they do. So yeah, that, I guess what are you are you pro artisanal mining or against it? Like, like what's the I guess what? It, so which side are you leaning on the fence? I want to see them given a fair deal. So for example, I don't have any issues if they were all to get booted out of work, but. If they're all going to get booted out of work, we've got to have plans in place for them to go to. And the way policy around the world is developing at the moment in relation to these people 
is that we're coming up with a policy, not worrying too much about the implications. And basically, if they end up on the street, that's their, their problem to deal with. And I think that's not. I think that's completely wrong. So that's where I'm coming from. Um, I see all the benefits to what they do. Um, I can see negatives to what they do. Um, but then, you know, I can see benefits to large-scale mining. I can see negatives to what those guys do as well. And because I've seen both so so intimately, so close up, I'm, I think I'm reasonably well-placed to comment on both. So let's – have you seen the movie Lord of War? No. No. Well, it's a Nicolas Cage one. It was about – it's um, he's an arms dealer. And, and long and the short, the start of the movie shows the – the path of a, a bullet like they make this bullet in somewhere america or something shows the path it takes from construction all the way over to africa like all the way around the world then ends up in africa and then some kid sh or someone shoots it and shoots someone in africa it's just you know like that's the whole that whole side of the world if you're talking about from what you've seen the the minerals let's say cobalt which is a battery metal. Um, the artisanal miners that are mining it, um, whether you call it illegal, whatever, like whatever the word is, but artisanal miners mining it by hand. What's the process of them mining it, selling it, making money? How much money are they making compared to market value? Because they're obviously not selling it on the normal market. What's that process? Where's it ending up? And what's the financial implications and what for what they yes. get out of it and what people are i guess people are on the other end that are benefiting from it because i'd assume a, a, um people in the battery metals um electric vehicle space are acquiring these metals that have been mined artisanally yeah no absolutely um look it's it's complex but you've got a series of you know producers processes traders um that you know the traders taking it out of the country and and then it ends up in you know refineries and smelters and or smelters and refineries and then um ends up you know with the end with the end producer um but to you know like i i was blown away the other day because you know one of the sort of a lot of these miners you know over the years earn about a buck a day right but then i was talking to the head of the um Small Scale Mining Association in Zambia the other day, and he was giving me sort of some of the latest numbers in relation to gold. And these miners are earning two hundred and fifty to three hundred bucks US a day, um, and that's just because there's been such a spike in in metals prices. So some of them are some of them are doing really really well. It's it's quite incredible. So I guess when's the I guess the book side of things coming out, mate. What's the what's the timeline? Sounds like it's going to be. What's it going to look like? It sounds, it sounds very intriguing. The whole uh, what this end product's going to be. Yeah, so the end product's going to be a book of about three hundred and sixty pages. So the book I think is going to weigh. Geez, I think it's like three four kilo. It's a pretty decent sized book. Oh, geez, um, that's nearly your whole bloody airplane check in. Fucking wait, yeah. mate. You gotta <laughs> yeah, don't check don't check it in. You've got to carry it by hand. Don't put well, it in imagine, your bag. Imagine if you're flying in the cloud break or something like that, and the I think the limit's ten kilos, you'd be you know, breaking the book in half just about. Yeah. Um Yeah, so so and the book's gonna include ten case ten case studies. So um I've got I'm about seventy five percent done. I've got four countries left to left to shoot. Um those some of those countries are I won't 
sort of necessarily say them here, but some of them are pretty tricky. In fact, the, the degree of difficulty has just escalated the longer I've gone. Um, and then sort of interlaid through that, it's going to sort of have some, you know, breakout pages that tackle some of the, you know, what I see as some of the myths and, nu and, and nuances in the space. It might be around ch child labour, it might be around environment, it might be around, you know, human trafficking, um, conflict minerals, um, you know, whatever else. Um, and then it's going to have sort of interviews with some of the miners as well to sort of personalise this, you know, the story to sort of basically say that, um, hi, I'm Simon from Cameroon and, and I'm a sand diver and, and this is what my goals are and just, just speak while I remember that you, you asked a question before, what motivates some of these people. Um, one of the interesting parallels I learned through this project is that um, most, of these, most of these people choose to do this work so they're not, they're not being forced into it. There's going to be an element of those that you know, force labour and that, but most of the miners choose to do this because they can earn more money doing this than they would if they worked in the fields and the farms. And when you really pair that back, um, that's no different to FIFO workers here in Australia or overseas. And those FIFO workers, most of them are sacrificing the life they could be living now, so they're not going out to theatres and to cafes and to the pub and all of that sort of stuff during the week because they're away, but they're sacrificing the life they could be living now for the prospect of better lives for themselves and for their for their families and you know giving education to their kids, buying a bigger house, buying a nicer car. And when you bring that back to what's happening with these miners that I work with, they're, they're doing it exactly the same. Um, they're sacrificing the lives they could be living now to try and make better lives for themselves and their loved ones going forward. And so that you know that's where the um, initially the, the the tagline for the book was um, the or is now the prospector's quest for a better life, and that's what they're all about, and that's what I think every all humanity is about. Yeah, well, it's uh, going to turn some heads, I reckon. Uh, what what ex are you expecting? A bit of. Um what would you say, backlash or a bit of, bit of controversy out of it when you release it? Um, look, you know, the goal of the project, it started out as, it started out as wanting to sell 50,000 books. The goal of the project now is not to sell 50,000 books, it's to get this book in the hands of all the major decision makers around the world that are involved in this space, the US President, Head of the EU, Head of the OECD, UN, World Bank, IMF, um, French President, Canadian, Australian Prime Ministers, British Prime Minister, all of that. I want these people to look at this book. I want them to be able to open the book to any given page and learn something. And just by doing that, to hopefully get them to think about the lives of these miners and say, right, it's not okay to dump them on the street, that if we take decisions that are going to significantly influence the lives of these miners, then we need to have plans in place for them to go somewhere else if it's going to mean loss of jobs. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, hey, mate, when you fucking – Big massive name like that with the in amongst the bloody US president. That don't forget you've been on this show, Cobber. Don't you forget? Oh, well, mate, don't forget. Don't forget about me, mate. Or to bloody chuck us down as a reference or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have to come. We'll have to come down and we'll we'll go to the pub for a beer and we'll include that in the back of the books. How's that? Oh, fucking beautiful. I got a one in the backyard, mate. Yeah, no, very, <laughs> very. So, um, yeah. Well, there you go. There's a. Uh, it's actually going to be available. Is she an online? Is it going to do like a digital version of it? What's the go with books these days? Is it, are you just doing hard copies, or can can people get ebooks of it? Or 
At this stage, it'll just be a hard, you know, it'll be a hard copy, but that doesn't mean that as, as the sort of thinking evolves behind it all that we couldn't sort of move into the digital space as well. So I'm quite active, as you know, on LinkedIn and Facebook and all of that. So there's definitely scope for something like that to happen down the track. Yeah, right. God, yeah, well, this is... um. It's going to be bloody yeah, very very intriguing. I'll be um, I'll be definitely getting a getting a bloody copy when it comes out. It's um, yeah, no, I sure saw something. I'll post a few of the links to the photos you sent me um, from all around bloody Africa and Pakistan and everything. It's um, yeah, it's just this whole world of mining that exists that we don't even know about. Um, but you've been right in the fucking mix of it by the sounds. Yeah, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating space. Um, a mate of mine who ex-military said to me at one stage, he said, um, what you're trying to do is the equivalent of trying to summon Everest twice without supplemental oxygen. And to a large extent, it sort of feels like that. And you go through periods of really sort of extreme um, self-doubt, um, not motivation. I'm never, I'm never short of motivation, but you go through periods of self-doubt as to whether you can pull it off because it's been over the journey, there's been so, you know, there's a lot of people really interested in what I'm doing and all of that but um, a lot of them are compromised as well and that's the one thing I reckon I bring to this space I'm, I'm not an NGO trying to raise funds for a cause and um, I'm not a you know someone from within government or I'm not someone with a you know certain job title and um, but it's a, it's a bloody hard it's a bloody hard road and I'm working I'm working harder now than I've ever worked in my life so um, yeah, you just got to stay the course. And you know, one of another thing this military mate of mine said to me once. He said uh, when he ran selection in this military unit, you know, because it goes for 25, 28 days, and the, the participants when they start never know how close they are or when when this thing's going to finish. And he said over the journey, he said he'd had people um, pull out within five minutes of the end. Yeah, I've never forgotten. I've never forgotten that. And I thought so. When things get really hard, I always say to myself or to others, you know. Just five more minutes, five more minutes, because you never know when you're five minutes from the end. And, and so long as you keep that up, you always get to the end. And um, you know, the, the, you remember the you rem, you remember the game, but you forget the pain. Have you ever thought during this um, journey project, journey through the project, have you ever th like thought, what the fuck am I doing? Is this going to work? Like have like real those real moments of doubt where you're like. Am I completely wasting my time here? Is this going to be a? I'm putting a lot of money into this. Is this going to? Or have you been pretty, pretty committed the whole time and haven't doubted yourself? I doubt myself nearly every day, um, but then I just push through it. Um, I just push through it and keep going. Um, it's yeah, like it's. I, I need to get on the road. I need to get. I'm try, I want to knock out two more locations this year. Um, but I need to, yeah, I need to get on the road and push through it. But it's just, you know, the, 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 the photography side and the, all of that is incredibly difficult as it is. So, but the business side on it is way, way harder because, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, who, who, who is, who's in the same camp? Cause a lot of, there's a lot of tire kickers in this space where they love what you're doing and they love following what you do, but who's, who's out there that you know, really relates and sees value in what I'm doing that they would sort of help support what you're doing. And, I'm, I'm, you know, that's happening to some extent in at the corporate level, but that's taken a long time and come from angles that, you know, you would never have imagined. But, yeah, you just, 
you know, you just, it's just when things are hard, you just got to keep driving yourself. And, and I've literally just said to myself, right, I'm putting it all out there. I've sold my house. Um, I got to, I want to achieve something. And people tell me I'll get there. And I know that I'll, I know that I'll get the book there, but it's not about producing a book. It's about having impact. And the, and it's very, those two are very different things because you can produce a book and it goes nowhere or you can produce a book and it has impact. And that's the second one that I want to do. Yeah. Now, what is the outcome that you want out of this for, um, oh, no, you said you want to influence, you know, people around the world to give the artisanal miners a better deal. What mm. What is the ideal scenario outcome that you'd like to see as a, from your, I wanna, from your book? I like, what, what do you like? Is it just they get more money? Like, what's the guy? What do you want? I want to... I want that I want greater awareness about the sector, but then the flip side of that is you know most of the people in power already know about these people, um, but basically just that we give a shit, and so that we have alternatives for these people to go to. And at the moment, I don't see enough of that. I, yeah, I want people to be planning. You know. There's this huge industry around development aid and NGOs and um, a thing called responsible sourcing now. And like this, this concept of responsible sourcing, for example, where the idea is you, by buying responsibly, you influence companies to be more responsible in how they do things. It's a crock of shit. It's, you know, at the moment, you've got 95% of the spend going on develop well consultants and auditors and risk assessors and whoever else and maybe if you're lucky five percent of those billions of dollars actually reach the people on the ground what i want to do is i want to flip that around and say rather than 95 percent of the spend going on people like us 95 percent of the spend needs to be focused on the outcome and and giving these people additional alternative livelihoods to go to yep yep i like it i like it i'll um be following this journey very closely last thing hairy situations you mentioned kidnapping, all that sort of shit. Give us a couple of bloody uh, things you've been through during these overseas uh, trips, mate. A couple of, any hairy situations, anything, any, uh, sh what would you say, sphincter-tightening moments? Oh, there's been, there's been a few sphincter-tightening moments. Um, <laughs> um, they don't necessarily have to be about being overseas either. I've had a few, quite a few in Australia. Um <laughs> In Australia, nearly got munched by a crocodile about 15 years ago. Oh, um, shit. And uh, even the other day, we were out fishing up here, and um, I, you know, I went back there the, you know, a few nights later, and I was just going, what the fuck was I thinking about there? When you Because know, me and a mate are standing in the river about knee-deep in water and tide's coming in, and um, probably not super smart. But um, in terms of the project, um, nearly got killed by a bit of fly rock and a blast in Pakistan 2015, literally... I was walking in front. Um, there was no warning about the blow, no proper warning about the blast. We didn't even know what was going on. And um, this bit of fly rock went past my head at about 200 k's an hour, about a metre in front. Um, I've had, yeah, had a situation, a situation in um, Russia where I got tracked as a spy for about six weeks. Yeah, right. Um, How long ago was this? Oh, that was, oh, what's that? four years ago oh, okay yeah yeah um so i got tracked as a spy through burma um so what they thought oh, you were a spy 
Yeah, yeah, no, same in Pakistan. Um, just because of what I do, like as a photographer, straight away that brings you on the radar. But then when you've got a photographer running around wanting to photograph mines, so who the fuck does that? Well, and, if, you're, uh, if you're a spy, you wouldn't have a big fucking camera hanging off the front of you, would you? you no, think. but look, one of, the, what, one of the things I learned out of all of that, particularly Russia, was I'm pretty meticulous in terms of my preparation. Um, so, you know, I do, do martial arts when I'm home about six days a week and just – I'm pretty thorough in terms of how I go about doing things, but and that was my downfall in Russia because I got to this, uh, I got to the airport in Moscow, and um, if it wasn't for me talking to this sort of um, six foot blonde Russian Australian at the baggage carousel, I could have been in a bit of trouble. And we're walking, walking out of the sort of um, just about to go into arrivals, and uh, this guy steps out with a, a badge. I thought he was a taxi driver. I, th I was about to tell him to take a running jump and I thought I'll oh, just be a bit careful and um, he turned out to be an undercover cop so he pulls me and um, this girl Valeria into the room and starts going through my stuff and he straight away he's seeing paracord he can he sort of you know he sees a, um, a rope kit for you know which I use if I have to jump out of a building if there's a fire or a terrorist attack um, and he sees you know a big sheath knife which I'd taken in case I needed to sort of hit the get on there because I so when you go into these places you don't know until you actually arrive you don't know how serious the, the security risk is so I just plan for it. it's going to be serious and I have to get out of there then what do I need to do and so in the Russian Arctic I had all these things and um but yeah and then he said to me he said um what was it he said uh, ordinarily um, this has to go before a judge and you're going to have to go and go in the clink basically for three days he said how do you feel about that and I just looked at him and said mate do what you got to do um and but it was new year's eve so he said to me he said it's your lucky day he said how much um what's my present so i went and got him 20 bucks and it was all happy 20 um, bucks is that all you had to pay to get out of it yeah fuck yeah, yeah but, that? geez there's usually a couple more zeros on the end of that isn't there <laughs> well the the downside of it was that he was um he alerted the fsb which is the um that's i don't new, know i think that's new kgb isn't it FSB. Yeah. Yeah. So they tracked me. All I didn't know about this until towards the end of the trip, but they tracked me all through Russia. And I remember going into this mine in um, um, northeastern Russia, and it was minus 58 degrees. It just come out of the mine. And um, I walked into the general's manager's office as two police walked out. And um, it turns out I became, because two, two of my team were ex Russian special forces. So they. Um, Arkady sort of let me know from that they'd been tracking me and that they'd been ringing forward and saying I was just, they thought I might be a spy and just keep an eye on me sort of thing. So, yeah, but um, it's just it's just part of the gig and I, the way I get around that I just try to be really transparent with people and just put it all out the table. Say, look, I'm not here to fuck anyone over. Um, yada yada yada. But even still, like you, you know, place when I was in Burma, that was particularly tricky. And I remember the thinking at one stage, I was being looked at through the you know scope of a rifle. So, um, just what you do. Yeah, right. You'd have to. Um, but that's the thing, as you said, if you if you think you're going to get fucked, like old mate that you're sacked. If you think you're going to get killed the whole time, it's just no point even doing it, is it? No, you've got to. You've got to. There's a there's a balance between being complacent and you know being basically being on your game and um it's a really it can be a really really difficult balance 
Well, next time we do it, when we do a face-to-face, um, we could do some live YouTube martial arts fucking demonstrations, and then you're on YouTube, like, visibly fucking people up, and they, like, yeah, you won't, you won't get questioned next time. They're like, this guy's on YouTube. He's the real fucking deal. Hugh, Hugh Brown, martial arts expert. So photographer on the side. <laughs> yeah, no, de- definitely not an expert at the moment. I mean, I think it's still the balance is I cop it more than I give it at the moment. Yeah, but, what, um, what, what, um, what field of martial arts are you into? Um, I do our niece, which is a um, Filipino sort of stick fighting, knife fighting, um, um, blunt weapon type martial art, no, uh, edge weapon type martial art. And then I also been doing a, a brilliant martial art called Kalar, which is comes out of Israel and it's a combat martial art and it's it's really is brutal but it toughens you right up and um you know it, it's an amazing martial art and uh I just hope I never have to use any of it but I just you know it's it's just I just want to be prepared that if if shit goes down at some point that I can at least give an account of myself and not you know go down without a you know taking someone out with me well i reckon god i just shit i don't know i don't know if he's bloody related to you or not but um there's a lot of browns in the world but the shift <laughs> boss i had up at telford was benny brown and he was into okay. some stick fighting martial arts um i forget the yeah so um coincidence maybe you obviously don't know yeah. ben brown that's in I the don't, martial but arts <laughs> It doesn't mean we're not related. We're probably Catholic families back in the day. So, oh, um, yeah, no, we um, <laughs> use a different different um, ethnicities, put it that way. So <laughs> you're definitely not okay. related, I don't think. Be pure co- coincidence. Yeah. Right, mate, what's your um, bloody people want to get in touch with you? What's the best place? LinkedIn? Um, yeah, probably LinkedIn or, um, you know, they can send me an email, hb at hughbrown.com is probably the easiest one to remember. Yep. Um, or if anyone wants to support the project or see how they can support the project, um, www.hbrownofficial.com slash MSP. So just abbreviate for, yeah, just different. You know, I've got a bit of a membership thing sort of going along so people can see what's happening there as well. So Yeah, yeah I'll chuck, I'll I'll chuck all the links. Send them all to me. I'll put them in the bloody episode description. Um, yeah, people awesome. click on their bloody merry way. So I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, buddy, because as it says, it sounds like a bit of funding would be appreciated. Yeah, it all it all helps. It all helps, mate. Um, but yeah, just more, also just swinging people in to just sort of say, right, you know, building the cause and doing all that sort of stuff as well is important. Yeah, uh, awesome, mate. Well, thanks very much for um, coming on, and I'm going to be very uh, waiting in anticipation for the release of this book. It sounds like it's going to be a, pardon the pun, a bit of a page turner. <laughs> Let's hope, yeah, I hope so, Matt. And I really, really appreciate your support and um, yeah, showing interest as well. Yeah, too. I know. No, as make sure we get Hugh on LinkedIn, just because the photos you put up of everything and your posts, and it's just yeah, it's a bit different to you know your normal LinkedIn feed, which is everyone talking about their fucking share price. But to <laughs> see this whole other side of the mining world, it's um yeah, very uh, very interesting and much needed as well. Yeah, no, awesome, mate. Awesome. Good on you, Cobber. Thanks very much, mate, and best of luck with everything. I hope you sell a fucking million copies. And, yeah, uh, thank you, mate. Don't don't forget me when you're at the White House, Cobb. I won't, mate. I'll just, um, we might even take an effigy of you and uh, just give it to the US president. Yeah, they'll be like, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, you. See you, mate. Cheers, mate.